Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Numbers chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. While they were singing, I was thinking about this. And, um, you know, when it comes to the idea of worshiping the Lord and praising the Lord, I don't have any problem with emotions. There's a lot of people, especially independent, fundamental Baptist churches that are afraid of emotions, you know. Don't get too excited in church. You know, don't shout amen, don't lift up your hands to the Lord. I have no problem with that. Look, there, there's got to be, the Bible says, let everything be done decently and in order, amen. right? Everything ought to be done decently and in order. But there's nothing wrong with getting excited about the things of God. Amen. And you, the, only, the thing that we have to pay attention to and watch out for is that we're not doing it for the attention of man, right? It can get to the point where I stand up and lift up my hands and do all this kind of stuff because I want everybody around me to see me. And think, boy, there's a spiritual person, or whatever, whatever the reason we do some of the things that we do to be seen. But you can do the same thing by saying amen, right? There's, I've been in churches where people are shouting and hollering so loud, you can't even hear what the preacher is saying. And, uh, you know, they can't hear what's being said because they're hollering so loud. So obviously they're doing it because they want people to hear them shouting amen. You can, you can take anything out of hand. You can, you can do anything to be seen. But you know the story of David in um, in First Samuel, Second Samuel, I think maybe it is, when uh, the the Ark of God was coming back into the city, and the Bible says that David danced before the Lord. David. Now David didn't care what everybody else thought about his dancing, and I and I, you know, we, you know, it's you can take that way too far as well, and all this stuff, and and we can spend a, a whole message talking about that sometime. But but the whole point is that Michael, David's wife came and said, David, you made a fool out of yourself dancing in front of those people today. And David said, I wasn't dancing for the people. I was doing it for the Lord. And God came and cursed Michael for saying that to David. God backed David's worship of him. And even though it was unconventional, even though it wasn't something that was always done, you know, the dancing and all of that kind of stuff, David was not doing it to be seen of people. He was doing it because he was doing it before the Lord, because he was excited that God's tabernacle, God's, God's Ark of the Covenant was coming back into the city. And so I, I think the point there, the lesson there, look, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I would that, that, that men everywhere would pray, lifting up holy hands, right? Nothing wrong with some emotions in a church service. If God gets a hold of your heart, if you get excited about something, there's nothing wrong with shouting amen. There's nothing wrong with lifting up a hand before God. But make sure that it's before God, right? We're not doing it to be seen by everybody else, but we ought not to be ashamed to do those things either. Just something that I was thinking about while they were singing. I think it's, it's, it's we, we lack emotions, you know? There's some other... Uh, denominations that take that emotionalism way too far, and everything is based on emotions. We shouldn't base everything on emotions. Everything is based on the truth of the Word of God, but there's nothing wrong with having emotions either. Amen. Numbers chapter 12, a, a nation collapses when its foundation is destroyed, and what is the foundation of a nation or a society? It's the home. We talked about that this morning, and I'm not going to reteach the lesson, but strong families are built by strong marriages. Strong, strong churches are built by strong families, and strong communities are built by strong churches. So it takes a strong marriage to make a strong family, to make a strong church, to make a strong community. 
And when those things collapse, then we lose the structure upon which everything should be built. Satan's very first attack was on the home. If you go, we're not going to take the time to look at it, but you can read all about that in Genesis chapter 3. He attacked Adam and Eve. They lived in a perfect environment. He went and he, he, he separated them, right? He told Eve, you don't have to listen to God. You don't have to listen to your husband. You do what I'm telling you to do. Eve did that, and of course, Adam followed, and they, they didn't listen to God, and that caused that, that sin to, to come upon every man. He tempted them to sin. He ultimately brought that destruction to their lives, and look, the next chapter, or a couple chapters later, you see Cain going out and killing his brother Abel, right? The, the, the very thing that from the very first home setting until now, Satan has sought to destroy the home. In this moment in history, the home is under attack. Sin is more prevalent than it ever has been in our society. Uh, America is legalizing sodomy. It's legalizing drugs. It's legalizing abortion. We've lost the sanctity of marriage. We're redefining it. God, in the Word of God, over and over and over, in the Old Testament, when it was at first established in Genesis, and, and several times in the New Testament, from Jesus Christ himself, Established marriage as between one man and one woman for life. And yet we're redefining all of those things. We, we've, we're slaughtering millions of unborn babies. The life of an animal is deemed more important than the life of a human being many times. Right? right? We've even started with this whole idea of euthanasia. Killing the old people because they're not worth living. Look, I, I wouldn't give up any one of the older people that we have in this room. Oh, Mr. Forbes, your medicine's getting a little too expensive. Time for you to go. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, knock you one in the head and you're gone, you know. That's what euthanasia is, essentially. I mean, they try to do it humanely, but how do you humanely kill somebody? You're taking their life. Same thing with the, the, the babies, the unborn babies, right? We've lost the value of life. We're living in a day when Christians are being asked to accept sin, and yet sinners will not accept righteousness. Perhaps people are rejecting Christ and anything that has to do with Christian living. Not perhaps, they are doing that. And the reason why is because Satan is behind all of those things and he hates God, he hates the things of God, he hates Jesus Christ, and he hates anyone that follows him. Right. And so he is attacking the very institution that will make America strong again, and that is the family. He's attacking the family. Now we've been through, and, and I kind of took really a couple months off of the series that we were going through with great prayers in the Bible. And we talked about the prayer of, of Elijah. We talked about the prayer of Jabez. We've talked about a lot of different prayers in the Bible. But I want to get back to that this morning. And in Numbers chapter 12, we find three siblings, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. And they came in that order. Now, you know Moses. Everybody knows the name of Moses, right? He led the children of Israel and all that stuff. His oldest sister was Miriam, and he had an older brother named Aaron, who became a high priest and lots of other things that we see about Aaron in the Bible. But they were siblings, and they had trouble in their home. Um, Miriam was the sister that cared for Moses when he was in the bulrushes. And remember, uh, they, uh, Pharaoh had commanded that all children two years old and under be put to death. And so Mary, uh, 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 Moses, his mother, made a, made a little basket out of bulrushes and put him in the reeds there. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter came down to the river with her servants to wash herself, and they heard the baby crying, and they went over there and found this baby in the bulrushes. And Miriam came out of the bulrushes and said, I know a Hebrew woman who would care for that baby for you. And of course, 
she brought the baby's mother. She brought Moses' mother, and Moses' mother was able to raise Moses until he was old enough to go and be a part of Pharaoh's palace. He was raised in royalty. All, a lot of that had to do with Miriam, and Moses knew that. Moses had a great love and respect for his older sister. Uh, Aaron was the one who helped Moses speak to Pharaoh when it was time to go, right? Moses said, but, 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 but I can't speak. I, I don't know what I would say. And God said, well, I'll send Aaron to go with you. And so Aaron went with Moses, and they spoke to Pharaoh, and eventually God uh, used them to let the children of Israel go out of Egypt, right? Aaron was the one, when they got into the battle, uh, and Moses was standing on the top of the mountain, as long as his hands were up in the air, they were winning the battle. When his hands would start to get heavy and they would fall, they would start to lose. And so Aaron got on one side, and Hur got on the other side, and they held up Moses' hands. That was Aaron. That was Moses' brother. Moses certainly had an appreciation for what Aaron did. But Moses' brother and sister did not like the woman that Moses had married. We see that at the very beginning of chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. In other words, Moses was a very humble man, more humble, the Bible says, than anybody else on the face of the earth. Moses was not going to come down hard on his brother and sister, more than likely. But here they are behind Moses' back. God doesn't only speak to Moses. He speaks to us, too. We don't need Moses. What, what, what in the world is he doing going and marrying an Ethiopian woman anyway? We don't need him. Let's get rid of him. God speaks through us, too, but God heard it. And that stirred division in their home. And God dealt with their problem. Look what it says in verse number four. The Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam. Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision. And will speak unto him in a dream. By the way, before we go any farther, remember when God came to Moses and Moses was on the top of the mountain there at Mount Sinai getting ready to get the Ten Commandments? Moses was the only one that had ever been able to see the glory of God. Now God said, I cannot show you my face. Nobody can see my face and live, but I'll show you my backside. You, I'll, pass, I'll pass behind you backwards and you can at least see the back of me. Nobody had ever been able to do that before, and yet, because Moses was so close to God, and then when Moses came down from the mountain after he had gotten those Ten Commandments, remember what the Bible said about Moses? It said that his face was so bright from having seen the glory of God that the people couldn't even look at him because he was so bright from having seen God's glory. Moses was the only man alive that was ever able to do that. Look what God says about Moses in this passage. He says in verse number six, if there's a prophet among you, I'll talk to him in visions. I'll come to him in a dream. I'll tell him what he needs to know. But, verse seven, my servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? See what he's saying? With everybody else, I give them dreams. I give them a vision that they can go, and, and then they interpret it, and I give them the interpretation, and I, and I kind of speak darkly with them. With Moses, 
I talk to him face to face. That's how close I am with Moses. That's how my relationship is with Moses. And yet, you're willing to speak against the man of God? Verse number 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. God called all three of them together, but then he directly called out Miriam and Aaron. And he said, you know, he, he continued to rebuke them for speaking against their brother, the man of God. And then he plagues Miriam with leprosy. But Moses pled with God on behalf of Miriam. And this is the prayer that we see that we want to look at this morning in verse number 11. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. So Aaron goes to Moses and he says, Moses, you've got to do something about this. Aaron no doubt knew how close Moses was with God. And he knew that if Moses went to God on behalf of Miriam, that something could be done about this. And look what it says in verse number 13. And Mer Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. So this morning, I want to share with you several points that characterizes Moses' prayer that should also apply to our prayer for our own families. Some, you might still have your family here. There might still be young kids. Some, you might have kids that are grown up and have families of their own. This can apply to all of us. This can apply to every single one of us this morning in the way that we pray for our families. Let's pray, and then we'll look at these things. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for our families. I thank you for this church family that you've given us as well. God, I pray that you would help us as we learn to pray for our families. And God, I pray that you'd help us as we look at this example of Moses, that you would use it in our hearts. Speak to us in any way that you want to, and I pray that, you, that we'd be open enough to receive whatever it is that you want to give us this morning. Thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we can see is this. Moses' prayer demonstrated his love. Moses loved his sister. And there can be no doubt about that. She was there for him in the bulrushes. She was there for him throughout his ministry. He didn't want her to suffer with this horrible disease. By the way, if you know anything about leprosy, leprosy has all, been, uh, all but been eradicated, not just in the United States, but really in the world. There are still some leprous uh, leper colonies and things like that. It's not completely gone, but you don't see people with leprosy in the United States. Leprosy is essentially a disease where your skin starts to rot while you're still alive. And eventually, you, your skin rots to the point where you, you can't stay alive. And so it's just a slow, tough, difficult, painful way to die. And Miriam gets leprosy as a result of her speaking against Moses. Now, Aaron, it, it, Aaron was right along with that. I don't know why Aaron didn't get leprosy. Perhaps it was Miriam who was the one that was leading this thing. Perhaps it was Miriam that said, you know, because uh, the Bible says in verse number two, and they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Perhaps it was Miriam that was saying that. I don't know. But Miriam got leprosy. Aaron did not. But Moses saw this leprosy and he felt bad for his sister. Uh, he didn't want her to suffer, and even though she had hurt him, he cared so much for her to ask God for her healing. You know, and sometimes family members can say hurtful things to one another. Uh, a lot of times it doesn't happen when the kids are young necessarily. It happens as, as they get older, and maybe they get married, and, and they, you know, they have the families of their own and things, and stuff gets said and, and whatever else, and don't let that, you know, sometimes they go wayward and they forsake one another. Families are separated. Families are split apart. 
Don't let that be the testimony of your family. You know, demonstrate love to your family no matter the circumstance and ask God to help them. See, you, can't, you, you can only do so much on your own. But you have the power of prayer behind you when you're praying to God for your family. And that's the way that it ought to be. In this story, you don't see Moses pointing fingers and asking God to go after Aaron next, right? He didn't say, great, Miriam got leprosy. Now, God, please do something to Aaron, too. He was right along there with that. No, what did he say? He didn't ask anything for Aaron. He didn't ask that, you know, that anything would happen to Aaron as a result of that. But he begged God that Miriam would, would that this leprosy would go away. His prayer demonstrated love. That ought to be what characterizes every family. Our families ought to be characterized by love. In the home, you have children. You ought not to let them be constantly fighting with each other. Right? You ought not to let them be constantly saying things that are mean and ugly to each other. And I get it. Brothers and sisters are going to do that. Right? I've got nine of them. I can't tell you that I never said anything ugly to any of them. Right? And I'm sure that every one of them said something ugly against me when I, you know, I was bigger than all of them until, well, never mind. But uh, things are going to be said. Things, you know, things happen, but it ought not to be what characterizes your home. It ought not to be the, the way that it is. Well, that's just who they are. They're brothers and sisters. They're going to fight. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. Your home ought to be characterized by love. I get so dis discouraged sometimes when I see how families interact with each other. They show no love between them. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, they act like if they weren't family, they would never even give that person the time of day. It ought not to be that way with our families. We ought to do whatever it takes to make our families function as a family unit. That's how America is going to be strong. That's how our churches stay strong, is because the families are strong. You know, that, uh, you know um, it, it, it ought to be, it, that's your wife. That's your husband. That's your brother. That's your sister. You ought to treat them with love. You ought to treat them with respect. God put you in the same family for a reason. Well, you don't understand what they did to hurt me. You know, you didn't hear what they said about me. No, maybe I didn't. But it couldn't be too much worse than what Miriam and Aaron said about Moses. Right? Couldn't have been a whole lot worse than, I mean, they completely undermined Moses' authority. They completely undermined everything that Moses had done. By the way, he didn't just say that he loved her. He showed it. He could walk around all day and say, I love my sister, but you know what? She got what was coming to her. I mean, yeah, she's got leprosy, but no, he showed her that he loved her by praying and begging God to take away this leprosy from her. In fact, turn over to Luke chapter 23. Think about what Christ endured for those that he loved. They slapped him in the face, literally. They spit in his face, literally. They crucified him. Literally. Oh, we say that all the time. He slapped me right in the face. He might as well just spit in my face. You know, oh, we went to this thing and they, I, they crucified me. We say all those things figuratively. Those things happened to Jesus Christ, literally. Yet look what Jesus did. Luke 23 and verse number 33. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, the, 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 uh, the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Jesus could have done anything he wanted to on that cross. He could have called down 10,000 angels to kill every single one of those people and show them a thing or two. He didn't. He loved them. That's true love. That's what we ought to demonstrate to our own family at the very least. 
Moses' prayer demonstrated love, but let's turn back to, to Numbers chapter 12. Moses' prayer demonstrated agony. And I think you'll understand what I mean when we look at verse number 13. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. You know what that means? Moses didn't say, All right, Aaron, God, if, if you want to, can you take this leprosy away from Miriam? No, he begged God. He cried unto the Lord and he said, Oh God, please heal her. I'm begging you, heal her. In other words, this was not just Aaron's idea going to Moses and saying, please, please do something about this. This is Moses and his love for his sister and his love for his family. The Bible says that Moses cried. He begged God to heal his sister. Begging gives the impression of endurance in prayer. Okay, if I just go ask for something, that's asking, but begging... It's exactly what my kids do. They come and they ask over and over and over and over and over. And they finally got to say, quit begging. I'm going to give it to you. Quit begging. Right? How many of you have done that with your kids? And probably every hand can be up in this room. We've all done that at some point. But that's what Moses is doing. I beseech you, God, I'm begging you, please take this away from her. He was sticking to his prayer and pleading for God to help her. He didn't just mention it to God once. He mentioned it over and over and over and over. That's what it means when I beseech you. He, he cried, he petitioned to God on the behalf of his sister. So let me ask you a very important question. When was the last time that you were burdened for a relative and pled to God for him? When was the last time you were so burdened that you begged God to do something in their life? Perhaps you have a child that strayed from the Lord. When's the last time you had a night that you couldn't sleep? because you spent it pacing the floor praying for that child. Well, they'll come back to God and to what they know is right when they're ready to decide, not without agonizing prayer. I've spent hours and hours on my knees in prayer for some of my very close family members to come back to God. I can tell you that that's the only way that they're going to come back. That's the only way that they're going to come back to the things that they know are right. When is the last time you paced the floor in prayer at night because you had a relative that you knew was not saved, that you knew needed to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and you begged God and begged God and begged God, please save them? Better than praying for a wayward child, when's the last time you agonized over one of your children while they were still children? We've got plenty of them in here this morning. When's the last time you begged God to, to help them to grow up and live for God? How about spend time begging God to help them turn out right? How about your grandchildren? I know a lot of us have grand, us, I say us, a lot of you have grandchildren in here. I don't have grandchildren yet. This is the next generation of Christianity we're talking about. If we lose our children, if we lose our grandchildren, we lose Christianity. Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. If this generation does not carry Christianity forward, if they stop telling people about Jesus, if they stop living as Christians, if they stop accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior because we're not telling them how to do those things, we lose Christianity. So many Christians are already dropping that ball when it comes to their families, and that's why you see Christianity slipping farther and farther and farther away from the consciousness of the American mind. Because we're not doing our job training our children and teaching our children to live godly. And it's even more than that. We're not praying for them. We're not agonizing for them in prayer. We're not begging God to do something with their lives. 
And until we get back to the point where we are agonizing in prayer for our children and for our grandchildren, we're not going to see America come back to God. We could spend a whole message on the agony of prayer, but suffice it to say this morning that Moses' prayer got God's attention because his request was birthed in agony. And that's how we need to pray for our families. Back to Numbers chapter 12. Moses' prayer demonstrated love. His prayer demonstrated agony, but also his prayer demonstrated patience. The Bible says this in verse number 14. And this is weird. The Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received again, in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. Now look, there's always a consequence for sin. There's always a consequence for sin. This was a custom that we obviously don't do today, but one commentator explained it this way. This appears to have been done, talking about spitting. Uh, it said, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? He says this, this appears to have been done only in cases of great provocation on the part of the child and strong irritation on the side of the parent. Spitting in the face was a sign of the deepest contempt in a case where a parent was obliged by the disobedient conduct of his child to treat him in this way, it appears he was banished from the father's presence for seven days. If then this was allowed and judged, uh, if, if then this was an allowed and judged case in matters of high provocation on the part of the child, should not the punishment be equally severe where the creature has rebelled against the creator? So what he's saying is, Miriam was shut out from the camp for seven days. If a father is able to spit in his child's face because of the contempt that the child has for the father, and the child is put outside of the camp for seven days, put away from his father for seven days, how much more should Miriam be put outside of the camp for spitting in the face of the creator is essentially what this is saying. That must have been a dark time for Miriam. The presence of God was represented by being there in the midst of the camp, and she is sent outside the camp for those seven days. That's what our sin does to us. Not that God would not allow us to come into his presence. We can always go into the presence of God. But our sin many times blinds us to the fact that we are away from God's presence. And we spend 7, 10, 12, 15, 2 years, two, 2 decades away from God, blinded by our sin. Because our sin always has consequences, and it had consequences for Miriam. But we also see that sometimes everything stops. Verse number 15 Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. Sometimes you just have to be still and take the time to put your family back together. Sometimes we get so busy with life that we don't even realize that our families are falling apart. Might even be in just in your marriage. We get so, you know, sometimes our marriages get wrapped around the idea of activities and fun around other people. Maybe you just need to spend some time together, right? Just spend some time together with your family. Put those things back together. It takes patience. Your life affects everyone close to you. Be patient with your family, right? I know a lot of times as, as the husband in the home, you know, we get so impatient why is, why is this not going the way that I want it to go? Why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? Patience requires patience. The Israelites decided that they were not moving. They weren't going forward until they dealt with the problem first. It turns out this time the problem was Miriam. She was banished from the camp for those seven days, and she had to sit out there, but Moses said, we're not going anywhere. 
We're not going anywhere until our family is put back together. He wasn't going anywhere without his sister. And I'll tell you this, the way that you react to any situation has a strong bearing on how the rest of your family reacts. And I don't mean this to sound disrespectful in, in any way at all, but I, I went on a call, a, uh, and this, this was, it was a very sad situation. Uh, I'm a chaplain for our police department, most of you know that. And so I get called to kind of some of the worst of the worst scenarios. And a, a lady was riding her bike, a mother, wife, uh, had two kids that were like 10 and 8, 10 and 7, something like that. And she was crossing the road, and she didn't see that her light had turned red. And a car was coming the other way, and the sun was, was right in his eyes. And he could tell that his light was green, but he couldn't see anything else. And so he went through the intersection about 45 miles an hour and hit this lady on her bike. She was killed instantly. And they called me to go out and do the death notification. So I got to the scene, and while we were waiting for everything to kind of wrap up so we can go and talk to the family, they realized that their wife, his wife, their mother, should have been back by, by then. And so they thought maybe something was wrong, and so they went out looking for her, and sure enough, they saw the bike. They didn't see the body. It was, it was far enough down that they didn't even know where it was at, but they saw the bike and knew that it was hers. And the kids didn't even know exactly what was going on. They were, they were still kind of young and, and didn't even really know exactly what was happening, but the dad just became hysterical. And as soon as the dad became hysterical, the kids became hyster uh, hysterical as well. And they just, they couldn't, be, they couldn't be controlled. And so finally I was able to talk with them enough that they, were, that they brought it down. But I say that, that those kids probably would have been just fine had their dad been just fine. And you can't, you can't, and that's why I don't mean this to be disrespectful in any way. You cannot control sometimes how you're going to react in a situation when it comes to dealing with something tragic like that. But a lot of times things happen in our home that if we would just react the right way, our children would react the right way too. And I'm not even talking about in a situation where there's, where there's a, a tremendous tragedy or something like that. I'm, not, I'm just saying with everything that we do, the way that we react has a bearing on the way that the rest of the family is going to react many times as well. And so it, it requires that we react and that we act with patience. Because a lot of times patience is, is, is the most difficult thing. Our wives, you know, need us to be patient with them. <laughs> Wives need their husbands, I mean, husbands need their wives to be patient with them, right? We all know that. We, we all know that husbands need the wives to be patient with us. Look, if we demonstrate the same patience with others that we want people to demonstrate toward us, it would change the whole dynamic of our families. But we have to watch how we react to certain things. And it's so easy sometimes to fly off the handle and to get upset and to get mad about something when it's not even really something that we should fly off the handle and get upset and get mad about but it upsets the whole family, the whole family dynamic. And prayer itself takes patience. We can't pray once that our kids would turn out right. And, well, I prayed for them. Now let's see what happens in 18 years. No, it takes 18, 20, 30 years of praying for them to make sure that they'll grow up and live for God and then keep on living for Him. And that requires tremendous patience. The last thing that we see, back to Numbers chapter 12, Moses' prayer demonstrated love. It demonstrated agony. It demonstrated patience. And lastly, Moses' prayer demonstrated forgiveness. Verse number 16 says, And afterward the people removed from Hazaroth and pitched in the wilderness of Paran. Moses and the Israelites moved forward past the event. Did Miriam and, and Aaron undermine Moses' authority? Absolutely. Were they willing to ditch Moses and take off with all the children of Israel? Absolutely. Was it hurtful to Moses? Probably. 
But Moses begged God that God would heal his sister. And God healed his sister. And then they said, all right, let's move past it. They picked everything up and they moved on. See, if someone in your family has broken your heart, become a leper, you ought not to be happy about it. You know, Moses didn't have that attitude toward his sister. He forgave her and he moved on. One of the things that breaks my heart, it happens in, in all kinds of families, but I think it happens a lot of times among fundamental Christians is their ability to disown their family. You know, a child turns away from God and instead of loving them and showing them that love, the family turns their back on them. Well, if you're not going to live for God, then we don't even know who you are. And they turn their back on them. I read a book. I, I can't even remember the name of it off the top of my head now. But uh, you know this Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, if they call themselves a church and if they can call themselves Baptists, I'd be very, you know, it's stretching both of those things. But they're the ones that protested all the uh, uh, soldiers' funerals and all this kind of stuff. Just very, very disrespectful, very much anti what a church should be and what a church is. But one of, the, one of the girls that grew up in that church realized that a lot of this stuff was not the way that God would act or that, that you should be acting as a child of God. And so she left the church and, and, and um, moved somewhere else or whatever else. And by the time that she wrote this book, she hadn't, talking to anybody, she hadn't spoken to anybody in her family in 15 years. They disowned her because, well, if you're not going to follow us and if you're not going to follow this church, then we don't even know who you are. And I think that's such a tragedy. When a young person makes a, makes a tragic decision, makes a tragic mistake to turn their back on God and everything that they were taught from the Word of God, they ought to know that the one place that they can come when they're ready to get right is back home. Look at the, look at the story of the prodigal son, right? Did that prodigal son's father say, you know what? He took his living, he, he took all his money, he went off and living in righteous living. I don't ever want to see that kid again. Doesn't say that, does it? It says he stood at the end of the road watching, looking afar off, waiting for the day that his son was going to come back. And that's, you know, that's what we ought to be doing with our children as well. I, I certainly hope my kids grow up and live for God, but if they make a mistake, I want them to know that the one place that they can come when they're ready to get those things right is back home. And they'll, the door's going to be open. There'll be a meal waiting for them. There'll be hugs waiting for them. They'll be accepted. They'll be welcomed back anytime they're ready to come back. And not, oh, well, don't talk to us until you're ready to get right. Then you can come back home. No, they ought to know that the one place that they can come anytime they want to come is, is back home. The door will always be open for them. And I think there's a lot more young people who run off into the world and realize that that's not the life that they wanted to live, who never get right with God because they had nowhere to turn because their families disowned them. Because their family said, well, if you, don't, if you don't want to live our way, then you're not going to live with us at all. You're not going to do anything. I think it's such a tragedy. We lose so many young people that way. There ought to be forgiveness. And that was, that's, that's not necessarily part of Moses' prayer, but you can look at the way that he prayed and realize that Moses had that forgiveness in his heart. I'm so burdened for America today. Churches are closing their doors in record numbers. Literally, we are closing, and this is, this is not just Baptists. This is, this is all denominations, but we are closing more churches by far than we're opening. I think it's something like 7,000 churches are closing their doors and only 4,000 are opening per year. We're losing that. We're losing America. Preachers are leaving the ministry like never before. We don't need fewer churches and preachers of righteousness. We need more. If we're going to see America remain strong, then we have to keep our families strong. 
we're going to grow in the Lord and live successful Christian lives, then we've got to be praying and begging God and agonizing for our family. I've said it before. A strong family is what makes up a strong church. Strong churches are what make up a strong community. And that's the only way that we're going to see this nation come back to God. It all starts with the family. We ought to be praying and begging God for our families. And if we're not, then we're failing. We're failing. If we fail to raise kids that grow up and live for God, then we failed as parents. And we failed as Christians. Because that's what our job is, is to pass it on to the next generation. And look, if you have kids that, that have grown up and are not serving God, don't, don't, don't take this as some strong condemnation against you or anything else. But take it as a, man, I need to pray for my children. Look, if you raised your kids in a Christian home and they grew up and they left and they're not serving God anymore, prayer can bring them back. If you have children that grew up and, and maybe you didn't have the privilege of, of knowing Christ as your Savior when you were raising your children and they didn't grow up in a Christian home, and now they're living lives in, in the world and they might not even be saved. Prayer can get them saved. But it's only going to happen when we as parents will agonize over the soul and over the condition of our children and agonize over our children while they're still young so that they might grow up and live for God and carry on Christianity as the next generation. That's the only way that we're going to see this nation come back to God. We talk about revival. That's the only way that it's going to happen is if we see a revival in the home. Revival in the home begins with parents who are serious about praying for their families. That's how we're going to see God work. Moses' prayer is such a tremendous example to us, demonstrated love. Moses' prayer demonstrated agony. His prayer demonstrated patience, and his prayer demonstrated forgiveness, and we must have all of those things if we're going to pray for our families the way that God wants us to pray for them, and if we're going to see God do something in their lives, and in our lives once again. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. Oh, God, I'm so burdened for the families in our country today. We've gotten so far away from what you originally designed for the family to be, and we're moving farther and further away from that. Oh, God, I pray that you'd help Christians to get right with you to the point where we're willing to pray for our families again, to the point where we're willing to beg you, agonize with you in prayer, that our children might grow up and live for you, that those children that have gone off into the world and aren't living for you now, God, would come back to you. There's nothing more that you would want for our families than for them to live for you, for our kids to live for you. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to agonize the way that we need to now, so that we don't have to agonize later over the decisions that they've made. And oh God, I pray for those that have children who might be away from you now. I pray that you'd bring them back. I pray that you'd help them to realize their need for you. I pray that you'd help them to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior if they've not done that. And God, I pray for the parents that they would be willing to pray the way that Moses prayed for his family, that they'd be willing to agonize in prayer that all of us would, God. I pray that you'd give me a greater burden, a greater agony for my own family. God, that we might pray the way that you would be pleased with in a way that you can bless. We thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed.
Holy Spirit's working on your heart this morning. Perhaps you need to pray for your family more. Perhaps you need to come up here with your family and pray for them. I don't know. But if God's speaking to your heart, the invitation is open and you can come and pray.